Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. So welcome everybody. Welcome back actually to Fitness for Consumption. We took a little bit of a holiday break and here we are. So Gigi, how was your holiday? Well, uh, you know, as it goes with the Omicron wave, my holiday plans were canceled. So, oh, bummer. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been uh, getting around to a lot of uh, cleaning between, you know, cracks in my kitchen and stuff like that. So really exciting, you know, very uh, people should be very jealous of what I've been up to over this break. Well, listen, you'll have a clean place to hang out in anyway. So <laughs> you know what? I gotta say, you can't really like coming home to a very clean apartment. I gotta tell you, it's one of the the greatest joys. It's of life. a great pleasure really in life, is. isn't it? It really is. So, all right. So here we are, and uh, our listeners, and now we can say our viewers. What, what? Yeah, we're going to do something a little bit different with this episode. And Gigi, why don't you kind of share with with our audience like why why we did this and what we're doing and why we did this? What led to this episode the way sure. we're doing it today? Yeah, so we did an episode on efficiency and we spoke a lot about positioning the center of mass re- relative to an exercise to promote the greatest sense of efficiency. And, you know, PJ, it's my experience that whether you're a layman or we know a lot of our audience are exercise professionals, the things you can see in the gym, like if you're doing a bicep curl, whether you're, you know, you know anything about exercise or not, you can see your bicep muscle is bulging and you can make the association that, oh, this exercise must be working these muscles. Or you can see weight on a stack or you can see speed on a treadmill and you can you know, you can make these associations and understand what's happening with the exercise. Mm-hmm. But, you know, la- a couple of seasons ago, we introduced the concept of torque right. and ground reaction force. And these are kind of invisible things that we're all dealing with in the gym. And frankly, people actually solve them all the time intuitively, but a lot of times accidentally. They don't know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. And so listening to that episode on efficiency, I feel it is so critical that people really understand what we're talking about, that they might have to see it because it's not something that's going to just 
expose itself clearly when you go to the gym. You kind of have to go a little bit deeper. And um, I felt that it was really necessary that we have to to provide some more visual detail to explain it. Fair point. And, you know, we were talking about lunges and we were talking Mm -hmm. about posture and we were discussing the forest through the trees and that was the name of that episode. And we were saying Mm -hmm. people get so hung up on specific joint angles and body positions when in fact they should be thinking more generally about somebody's posture and how that posture positions their center of mass in order to promote efficient movement. So you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right. Uh, What does that posture look like? And how do we get ourselves into those positions that allow us to move fluidly? Yeah. So what we want to do is we want to provide some illustration so that we can really get at the heart of this and not only explain to people what's going on, but to actually show them some images and videos that should help with their understanding of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's start with the basic concept, which is center of mass. And people have heard of the term center of mass. I think we should start with what it is before we even get into where it is, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what we're looking at here in this image is what we call anatomical position. And we're not illustrating anything except this person standing there. And what we're trying to get at here is understanding that every part of a person's body, their head, their trunk, their arms, their pelvis, their legs, every part of their body has mass, right? The arms have their own separate mass and the head has mass and the trunk has mass. And they sort of balance each other out in a way. So the mass of the left arm and the mass of the right arm, if the arms are positioned, as you see in this illustration, they kind of neutralize each other from side to side. And so when you think about it, all these masses, they sum together, they come together in the body. And when you add them all up, there's a point at which there's zero net load anywhere. That the, Mm -hmm. the mass, the force produced by that mass sums to zero at some point in the body. And that's what we refer to as the center of mass. Yeah. And a lot of people will uh, refer to that as the balance point. So the, the point on in the object in which it's balanced. Correct. And so in this illustration now, we've identified the general position of the center of mass when you're in standing anatomical position. And for the most part, it's L3, L4, right in that region. Mm -hmm. And if you take a look at the side view here, you can see that it sort of bisects the body front and back. So that's where the center of mass is when we're standing up. Right. And every object, PJ, we should mention, has a center of mass. So fun fact here, when I used to teach the balance class that we worked on when we were at Cybex, um, I used to take, in the beginning, I would take various objects and have the class guess where the center of mass might be. Mm -hmm. And so if it's a perfectly symmetrical object, it's typically in the center. If it's something like a baseball bat where one end is much heavier, and we'll get into that in more detail, it's going to be towards the heavier end, but I would always steal a bagel from the hotel I was in or if they had it at the place, and I would hold up the bagel to the class, and I would say, okay, where's the center of mass of this bagel? And the punchline is it's in the center. It's in the hole. So 
That's right. So an interesting fun fact here is that the center of mass doesn't actually have to be inside the body. It could be outside the body. Mm -hmm. Another example of that in the human system is think of someone doing a dive in the pike position in which they're rotating Mm -hmm. through space. The center of mass is in the space between their upper body and lower body in that pike position. And that's also the axis of rotation. So when you're rotating Mm -hmm. in space that way, the center of mass is your axis of rotation. So that pretty much covers the center of mass. Now, Mm -hmm. some people tend to confuse the center of mass with the center of gravity. Now, they're similar, but there's an important distinction here, and I think it's valuable for us to cover that. Yeah, so the center of gravity is actually the vertical projection of the center of mass over the base of support. So what does that mean? So if you look at this diagram where you see that red dot, which reflects the center of mass, and then you see that red arrow that's going down over this person's feet, so his feet, when he's standing, are his base of support. Now, when you look at this next diagram and this person is laying down, the center of mass is actually in the exact same place. However, because they've changed their body orientation, it's projecting over a completely different place. It's no longer going over his feet. Now it's going just through his lumbar spine. That's right. And so what we're basically saying here is depending on your posture and your position in space, your center of mass may not change its position at all. But the center Mm -hmm. of gravity in these two examples has changed considerably. Mm -hmm. So this is why we need to understand the difference between center of mass and center of gravity. Now, Mm -hmm. there's something to consider, and that is the center of mass doesn't always stay in that position. So in these two examples, the center of mass has stayed right in the lumbar spine area. But the center Mm -hmm. of mass can move. So let's have a look for example, at this illustration. So we're showing a center of mass that is now outside the body and a center of gravity, which is outside the base of support, actually. Mm -hmm. So how does it move that way? What causes the center of mass to move? And then its vertical projection being its center of gravity moves as well. So what causes that? Okay, so what we're seeing here is that the center of mass is going to move in any direction where there's added mass. So there's a couple things happening here. One is that we can see this person has now changed their body orientation. So if they simply just moved only their upper body without that kettlebell, that would actually move the center of mass. But because they're holding a kettlebell and that's adding additional mass, the center of mass is going to migrate towards that direction. Now, if this person is 150 pounds and that kettlebell was two pounds, it wouldn't have that significant of, of an effect. You'd have to, you'd have to um, take into consideration his upper body moving and then the additional mass. But if that kettlebell is 50 pounds, it's going to make a significant change in terms of where the center of mass is moving. Sure. So as you add more and more mass in the way of a heavier kettlebell, or maybe you lean over even farther, you move your mm-hmm. arms farther in that direction, all of those things cause the center of mass to move in the direction of the displaced body parts and in the direction of the added mass. Mm-hmm. So in this illustration, you can see, and we just illustrated it to make the point, but the center of mass has moved 
potentially outside the body and the center of gravity now is potentially outside the base of support. If that's the case, then this person is going to have a hard time standing upright, in which case they're going to have to widen their base of support in order to become stable. And I think just one important thing here, PJ, is that I think a lot of preconceived notions people come into exercise with, which is like a lunge, like you need to lunge in a certain way, or you do, if you want to quote unquote tone, you do this kind of load and this amount of reps. So, and a lot of what we do in the podcast is sort of chip away at that and talk about how flexible a lot of these things are. So just how a couple seasons ago, we introduced this idea of torque and a moment arm, which is really showing you in one moment in time, based on what's happening here, this is what the torque is at a joint. Same thing with the center of mass and the center of gravity. It's not fixed. It can move based on the current circumstances. That's right. And with that, now let's apply this thinking to what we were talking about in our episode called The Forest Through the Trees, and that's a lunge. All right. Essentially, what we want to do is think about the different positions that we discussed in that episode. So we've got what we typically refer to as the accepted position for a lunge, for lack of a better word. I mean, look, if you go to YouTube and do a search on the proper way to do a lunge, this illustration is what you're going to see. And what we could say, if you look at this illustration, you could see the red dot. That's the position of the center of mass in the 90-90 position, in the commonly accepted Mm -hmm. lunge position. The reason why it's there is we could say, well, the front leg went forward, so the center of mass actually should translate forward, right? It goes in the direction of the displaced mass. But what we also know is that the other leg is behind the person. So there's sort of a counterbalance that occurs between the front leg and the back leg, and you end up with the center of mass staying fairly consistent in that location. Mm -hmm. Now, the goal of this movement is to return to the starting position from that lowered phase. We want to push into the ground so that we can return to the standing position. And push into the ground, in fact, is what we do. We push down into the Mm -hmm. ground, and it's the ground reaction force that actually moves us up. But there's a funny thing that happens in this position between the ground reaction force and the center of mass. So why don't you take us through that, Gigi? So in this diagram, now you can see that red arrow that's coming up from the ground. And that represents this person as they're pushing into the ground, as we know, Newton's third law, there's an equal and opposite reaction in the other direction. So that's what that arrow is representing. Now, what we need to look at closely here is the relationship between that arrow and where the center of mass is. And so because that center that center of mass is behind that arrow, that arrow is actually pushing you back onto your back leg from that position. Right. If you so remember that, from the Forest Through the Trees episode, we made a reference to billiards. And if a cue mm-hmm. ball hits the other ball off center, it creates what we call distortion. It pushes the other ball at a tangent to the direction of impact. So what's happening here is because the center of mass is so far behind 
the ground reaction force vector, or put the other way, the ground reaction force vector is well in front of the center of mass. What it tends mm -hmm. to do is push the center of mass backwards, not up. So you can see in the dotted arrow, it's roughly a 90 degree angle to the ground reaction force. That's a tangent. So it's pushing that center of mass backwards, which is why the body weight ends up on the back foot when you do this. And if you watch people do this exercise, you can see that they actually end up with their weight on their back foot and they use the back leg to kind of pull themselves to the starting position. And we can see that illustrated in this video. So let's watch. This was actually in our lab at Cybex. Mm -hmm. We did this experiment. These were the actual subjects that we used uh, for the paper that we published. This is a kinematic analysis. It's a biomechanical analysis. That gray thing in front of him is a force platform. And so he's going to lunge onto the force platform. And you can also see the little reflective markers that are on his leg. And we use that to create the biomechanical model. It's an infrared camera system. And that's how we're actually measuring what's going on. So if you watch what he's doing, you can see that it's very kind of slow. He's kind of pushing his weight onto his back leg. It doesn't look like it's a very smooth motion. It's a subtle thing, but mm -hmm. there is some hesitance in his movement. It does seem a little bit slow to me, at least to my eye. And maybe that's mm -hmm. confirmation bias because I did this research, so I kind of understand <laughs> what the outcome is. But let's just take a second and look at the biomechanical model because yeah. this is the model where we actually see those forces illustrated. So this is where yeah. our biomechanics lab system is able to capture this and actually represent the information. So what we're going to do is watch this go. That blue line that you see emerging is the ground reaction mm -hmm. force vector. Now, the one thing you don't see here is the position of the center of mass. That's not identified in this model. But if mm -hmm. you just kind of work in your mind's eye where we illustrated it, you can mm -hmm. see how this works. And I'm going to stop this at this point right here. And now you're at the bottom of the movement Think about where we illustrated that center of mass in the body. It's sort of right above the pelvis, in, mm -hmm. in, right in front of the lumbar spine. And look mm -hmm. at that ground reaction force. Yeah. So there's a few really significant things here. So one is, PJ, even before we get there, I want to backtrack a little bit. And look where that ground reaction force is emanating from on the body. So it's going basically right from the calcaneus, right at the ankle joint. So if anyone remembers our podcasts on torque, what we know part of what creates muscle activity at a, at a joint is that the joint needs some distance from the force. So this is going straight through the ankle joint here. So very little torque production happening at the ankle. Absolutely. And if you look at the EMG models here, when, when you start looking at muscle activity, which we also did in this study, uh, there's very little activity going on in the plantar flexors because that joint does not really have a moment that mm -hmm. is being created to activate those muscles. So that's a critical point and something that people don't necessarily think about. We're all so concerned about the load and the stress on the front knee. 
we don't stop to think about what's working or what's not working in this case. And in, in this type of a lunge position, the ankle is not really under a load. And there's mm-hmm. a compressive load, but there's really no joint moment there. And so that's something to consider for sure. And imagine this, you know, if you're if you're doing, let's say you're trying to jump and mm-hmm. you lift your toes off the ground before you jump and you have to jump mm-hmm. off your heels, imagine how high you're going to jump. Yeah, I want every listener right now to pause, try to jump from your heel and see how high you get. Yeah, I think people will get about an inch off the ground if they do that. <laughs> that yeah. yeah, so without your plantar flexors, you really at a disadvantage. Those muscles are very yeah. important for propulsion. There's another thing about this particular vector that I think is noteworthy, GG. Mm-hmm. Can you tell everybody what that is? Yeah, so we've already mentioned its relationship to the center of mass, but if you watch this video carefully, right at this three-second mark, you're going to see this ground reaction vector. It kind of pauses momentarily, and then you'll see it accelerate again. But when you see, you know, again, PJ, to the um, your uh, encapsulation of the person doing the lunge, like that didn't look extremely inefficient to me. If I saw that person in the gym, I wouldn't worry about, you know, them injuring themselves or something. But you do see a little hitch when they're doing that lunge. And you really see it represented here on this video where there's at about three seconds, it pauses and then it accelerates again. So that's just, you know, it, and it could be, you know, we're not measuring this with real specificity here. We're using a video clock, but it's about a second. And, it, and you may say, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just a second. But if you're talking about real life movement, a second is a long, long time. Most any high level sports or a lot of body movements take place in milliseconds. So a second is not inconsequential. Right. And that's that hesitation that I was talking about when you watch somebody mm-hmm. doing this. Uh, there is that little pause, and that's because the weight is being transferred into the back leg before you actually mm-hmm. start to move up. I think the last thing to note here with this ground reaction force vector is the length of the arrow. So when we mm-hmm. talk about vectors, the length of the vector represents the magnitude. In this case, it's a force so that the length of that arrow is a representation of the overall magnitude of the force that's being projected. Mm -hmm. There's nothing specific to say about this, but when we look at the forward position, we should remember this and compare this grand reaction force vector to the one that's in the forward position, and you'll see something that's markedly different. But the final point here, again, is the center of mass of this individual is right above the pelvis. And that ground reaction force is very far in front of it. And that's what's pushing the center of mass backwards onto the back leg and causing that hesitation, that one second pause that you noticed and the inefficiency of the movement. So Mm. let's now then take a look at what happens when you do the forward position. Mm -hmm. And what we're showing you here is the upright position again, but this time we've not only illustrated the center of mass, we've also illustrated the center of gravity. So you can see in that upright position, the center of gravity, the vertical projection of the center of mass is pretty much right in the middle of the stance. But Mm -hmm. now look what happens 
when we lean forward. And, and in this position, we're not just leaning forward from the waist or from the hips. We're also shifting our weight forward. We're translating our body linearly forward so that we're moving a lot more weight onto the front foot. And you can see this center of gravity now. First of all, the center of mass has moved forward a little bit because mm-hmm. we are pitching the trunk forward. So that's going to move the center of mass forward. The whole body's translating forward. And so now the center of gravity is falling right behind that lead foot. So there is a lot more weight on the front leg than there is on the front leg when you're in the upright position. Yeah. And PJ, I think we've spoken about the difference between a lunge and a split squat. But if we haven't, a lunge means you have to take the foot off the ground, accept an impact, and then go back to the starting position where a split squat is you can be in this tandem stance, meaning your legs are split front to back, and you're just going up and down. So if you're not ready to try this incline lunge, just to feel the difference, get into a split squat stance and lean your body forward. And again, we said, why do most people do a lunge? You're trying to bias the forward leg. But you will feel the significant difference when you lean forward on how much more load that's putting on your forward leg than when you're in that first position, that upright position. So I encourage everyone just to get into a split squat stance and just try inclining your trunk forward and see what that feels like. Absolutely. And because you're moving the weight into the front leg, people may say, well, that's no good. Well, there are actually real benefits of doing that. Most notably, when we look at this illustration, now we can see the ground reaction force vector for this forward position. And you'll see a few things here. One, to your point about its origin under the foot or the center of pressure under the foot. Notice how now it's coming out of the ball of the foot, which is very different from the upright position. So that's going to activate the plantar flexors, which is a really good thing. And the angle of that ground reaction force vector is now pushing it very, very close to the center of mass, which is causing the center of mass to move more vertically and backwards, not just backwards And so there's very little weight acceptance onto the back foot. In fact, you can do a lunge this way by lunging onto the front leg, completely lifting the back leg off the ground, pushing down into the ground with your front leg, and then returning, landing on your back leg. So you can actually lunge without using your back leg on the ground at all. When uh, you PJ, do it, we're this gonna need way. to see video of you you performing that for everybody. I may have to do that at some point okay. at my advanced age. <laughs> so now let's take a look at the live model again and see the difference, you know, just visually, how different does it look when he's doing this versus the mm-hmm. last one? Right. And he's not even inclining his trunk nearly as far forward as he could be, but he's he's certainly doing more than Yeah, I would yeah. like to have had him do it more. Now by the way, this is just one set, right? One trial mm-hmm of multitudes of trials. So this isn't necessarily the exact form that everybody took. It's just Mm -hmm. this was his form, which, by the way, is why when you do research, you can't just use one subject. You have to use Mm -hmm. multiple subjects so that you can sort of eliminate the variability that you see when people are taking different positions. But that said, 
Yeah, so this is a little bit smoother. It seems to accelerate mm-hmm. a little more efficiently. You know, it's it's a more efficient process. We'll look at the biomechanical mm-hmm. model. And what we'll do is just watch this a couple of times, mm-hmm. see where that ground reaction force vector mm-hmm. starts, and we'll just stop it right here for a second. It's all the way up at the ball of the foot. So there mm-hmm. is a big plantar flexor moment now that is created, which is really engaging the calf muscles when you do this. Now, let me just ask, sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Let me just ask. So you didn't, because I think this is an important point here. You didn't cue this person specifically to say, push through your heel or push through the ball of your foot on this study. I know you've done that with other squatting studies, but on this study, the system sort of self-organized just based on the, the instruction to have that incline. Dynamic systems theory. Mm, yeah, there we go. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, yes, this is um, a self-organization, right? Self-organizing property. We just told the subjects that they needed to allow their weight to go forward. They they could allow their knee to go forward, and they should incline their trunk forward. The mm-hmm. final position that they assumed was up to them. So we didn't tell them mm-hmm. where to push from in the foot. We just said push into the ground. That's all we said. Mm-hmm. And I really think that brings some the point of why we're doing this whole thing, which is when you set up people in efficient positions, you don't have to cue them in 10,000 different ways that it organizes itself. If you can figure out the basic position, that's going to be most efficient. Absolutely. And so the cueing, and this goes back to our yeah. cueing episodes, what are we trying to tell people here? Are we trying to tell them specifically how to do this movement? Or are we just going to give them an external movement cue and a goal of movement and say, hey, you know, your goal is to lunge forward, get your body weight over your foot, and then push down into the ground in order to return to the starting position. And this is what they do. They self-organize this way. So that's the first thing when you look at this ground reaction force vector, you can see that it's coming forward in, into the foot. A uh, couple of other points, actually, as we watch this go, it is much closer to the center of mass. Remember, the center of mass is projecting forward here because the body's leaning mm-hmm. forward. So this ground reaction force vector is much closer to the center of mass, which is allowing the center of mass to accelerate more smoothly toward the starting position. And then the last thing is... Take a look at the length of that vector arrow. And here you can see it is just emerging over the top of the upper thoracic lower cervical spine. Mm -hmm. That ground reaction force vector is significantly longer Mm -hmm. than it is in the upright position, which Mm -hmm. means the magnitude of the force that you're creating when you do the lunge this way is greater you produce more force, you accelerate more rapidly, you move more efficiently. And that's a very big difference between these two conditions that you see how much force you can produce when you get your body in the right position. Yeah, because in the other model, the ground reaction force ends up at about the sternum. And to your point, now it's getting past basically up into the cervical spine. And you don't see that hitch. You just see a smooth line of acceleration, which I think really um, just shows that's, you know, that's efficiency. This is efficiency. When you can smoothly accelerate your center of mass, then you're moving your body through space 
effectively and efficiently. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. Okay. So that kind of covers the lunge. I think we've provided some interesting illustration there, but there's something else we want to talk about. All right. So PJ, we've been talking about posture and how it relates to setting up efficient exercise. And we've been looking at a lower body exercise. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at posture and how we would set it up and its relation to a common upper body exercise. Yeah. Something that we see every day in the gym. And if you look at this illustration, I bet our listeners, viewers slash viewers now, I bet Mm -hmm. our listeners slash viewers can figure out what this is. And basically what we're talking about is a standing cable press. Mm -hmm. This is a very common exercise. People do it all the time. Uh, There are some misconceptions about it, which I think are worth discussing on some level. But here's an illustration of a person doing this standing cable press. And if we look at this now, what we've done is we've applied the center of mass and the center of gravity to this position. Mm -hmm. And so in that position, one leg is back, the other leg is forward, the arm is forward the center of mass is maybe moves a little forward of that position but generally speaking Mm -hmm. it's in the middle of the body where we've located it and the center of gravity is that vertical line that projects down Mm -hmm. now you'll see there's a little circle around the back foot the ball of the back foot and the reason that we've illustrated this is because that is the pivot point of this mechanism of this setup right some people think the pivot point is the front leg but when you're doing a standing cable chest press your axis of rotation your pivot point is that back foot and if you don't believe me next time you do a standing cable chest press lift your back foot off the floor (laughs) and see what happens all right now if you can do that and take video of that we all want to see that as well yeah well that's one i'm not going to attempt Because my wife will have to scrape me up (laughs) off the floor. (laughs) Okay. So those are two very important things to understand is the the axis of rotation for this is that back foot and there's your center of gravity. All right. So now let's look at this next illustration. And what we're illustrating here are the forces and moment arms associated with this position. So the green dotted arrow from the handle going straight back, which is labeled F sub C, is the force of the cable. Mm -hmm. So that's pushing you back. The moment arm for that particular exercise goes from the back foot, the axis of rotation. It's a perpendicular line from the axis of rotation to the line of force. Mm -hmm. So that's the vertical arrow D sub C, which is the distance to the cable. Mm-hmm. All right. F is for force, D is for distance. We got it. Correct. And so sub C is for cable. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to counterbalance it. 
what those two are doing, the force and the moment arm, F and D, what they are doing is creating torque around that back foot. If we don't want to fall over backwards, we have to create a torque in the opposite direction mm-hmm. to balance it out, right? Mm-hmm. So what creates that torque? Well, the body mass is one thing. Mm-hmm. So where it says F sub B, that's the force applied by the body. It's the center of mass accelerated toward the ground. Mass times acceleration is force. So that's the force which is pushing down into the ground. And the moment arm for that is the distance from the center of gravity, the vertical projection of that force, back to the axis of rotation, which is D sub B. Right? So those are the elements that come together to enable this person to remain balanced. So the question is, given this arrangement, how much force can this person handle through the cable in that position without falling over backwards? Okay, well, PJ, like solving any problem, we have to start with what do we know and what don't we know yet? So what do we know here? So what we can know is the mass of this person. So let's say this person is 150 pounds. The other thing we can measure is how far is that center of gravity, that projection of his center of mass to the axis of rotation that's basically at the ball of his back foot. And so Mm -hmm. that's 0.5 feet. And so when we multiply um, 150 pounds times 0.5, we get 75 pound feet. Correct. Now, some people use the term foot pounds, which is perfectly acceptable. The only reason why we use pound feet is because in the metric version of this, it's referred to as a Newton meter. So the, so the force comes before the distance. So all we're doing is sticking with convention. And so we say pound feet. Foot pounds is perfectly acceptable. It's the same thing. It's just whether you stick with the convention, but absolutely correct. So the the moment that's created around that back foot that's rotating this body in this illustration forward or to the right as we're looking at it is 75 pound feet. So we know that. So now we've got to figure out the other side here. Right. So there's one thing that we basically do know. We don't know what the force of the cable is yet. Mm-hmm. But there's one thing that we can measure here, and mm-hmm. what would that one be? And that'd be the distance of that cable, again, to that axis of rotation. On, on that That's right. Line. The moment arm for that, for the force, right? right? So of the cable, the moment arm to the cable. And let's just estimate, for example, with, with this person, it's four feet. So think about from the ground to your shoulder height on mm-hmm. someone who's a standard height. Let's just mm-hmm. call it four feet. So... We now have a balance equation. We know that the person's mass times their moment arm has to equal the force of the cable times its moment arm. And so when we do all the math and we work through it, we end up with what? We end up with, so we have to divide because we know four feet and we know we have to figure out what that relationship is to 75 pounds. So we just have to divide. And what we come up with is 18.75 
pounds. So 18 and three quarters pounds. 18 and three quarter pounds. Mm -hmm. That's the most weight that you can do in a standing cable chest press with this posture. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm doing this, I'm hoping to get stronger. So the question is, how much stronger can I get if my max load, and by the way, it's not 18 and three quarter pounds on each arm. It's a total of 18 and three quarter pounds. So it's nine plus something pounds on each side. You're not going to get very strong doing that. Right. And we could say, look, for someone that hasn't ever worked out or hasn't been in a gym in 20 years, sure, nine pounds might be some sort of challenge. But um, to someone that has some regular training experience, nine pounds is probably way short of even coming close to even their 30% rep max. Absolutely. So what do people do? I mean, to be honest with you, how many of us have actually seen somebody doing a standing cable chest press in that posture? Yeah, never. So never. What, you, what you do see is the next picture, which is someone leaning forward here. Exactly. This is what we do. We lean forward when we do it. So what is the, what is the benefit of leaning forward? So, and yeah. we are illustrating the same things here, right? We're, we're showing the same elements, the same components of the system. The one thing that's notable here is that the center of mass is moved forward. All right, Mm -hmm. so one, it's projected forward because the person's leaning forward, they're stepping forward. All of that moves the center of mass slightly forward. Mm -hmm. And so the center of gravity now, look where that is. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean when the center of mass moves forward? It's a longer distance back to that axis of rotation. That's right. The center of gravity has moved way forward toward into the front foot, And so the distance from that vertical projection back to the axis of rotation has increased significantly. And we can say basically, you know, here it's a rough estimate, but what we're saying is that we have gone from 0.5 feet in the upright posture to now one and a half feet in this forward posture. We have tripled. Yeah the size of the moment arm in this posture. And so if you triple the moment arm, you triple the weight that you can support. Mm -hmm. And so now I can do 56 pounds. Very different. So this is what we do. We lean forward. We create a different posture. We reposition our center of mass, which repositions our center of gravity, creates a bigger moment for us to work with so that we can withstand greater load. I mentioned earlier, though, that there is a misconception Mm -hmm. And here's the misconception. When you do this, you get more core activation. That's right. And as a matter of fact, in our first season, we went over a paper that suggested something just like that. That's right. And in our, uh, I think it was our first episode of The The Fine Fine Print, Print, where we were talking about this. And the truth of it is, you don't increase your core muscle activation. We actually did a study at the University of Massachusetts and we did this very thing. We were comparing abdominal muscle activity in this type of exercise with a supine bench press. And what we determined was when you lean forward like this, the abdominal muscle activity is no different from a supine bench press. 
But one thing that did change that activity was the, the magnitude of the load at which you were working, even on a supine bench press. Mm-hmm. The heavier it is, the more your abdominals work. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that you don't get increased abdominal activity in this is because you're leaning forward and you're counterbalancing the moment at your lumbar spine. Mm-hmm. So there's a net torque of zero really at the lumbar spine. Those muscles don't have to work. So they're not activated to, to work. On the other hand, they do work a little bit. And this is something when you ask trainers, they, they, this is a nuanced type of a thing. But when we're contracting the pectoral muscles in order to move the arms through space, those pectoral muscles are inserting on the ribs. Mm-hmm. Well, if we want to move the arms efficiently, we need to stabilize the ribs. So the ribs aren't being moved when the pecs contract. If the ribs move, then we're going to actually lose efficacy in that contraction. So the abdominal muscles contract to pull the rib cage down to stabilize it so that the pecs can actually move the arms more effectively. So here's the moral of the story. You want to use your abdominals? Lift more weight. Yeah, because you're also, we did mention here, but even when you lean forward, there's a maximum of how much weight you can, even if it's three times, you can't do another three times, unless you have any sort of external support, you're still limited at that three times of the nine pounds that you're starting with. So unlike a bench press where you've got a stable external support, you know, you can increase the load significantly. I mean, potentially, if I really wanted to contort myself, I can set the the cable position up higher and I can really lean all the way yeah. forward, which yeah. by the way, a lot of people do and yeah. that allows you to do even more weight but if you're going to do that, then you may as well lay down on a bench because you're going to probably get more out of that. Yeah, so, I would totally agree. Yeah. So anyway, the moral of the story, the end of the day, what we're talking about is creating an effective posture so that we can position the center of mass in a way that allows us to move efficiently or stabilize efficiently. Efficient movement is what improves motor skill. And getting back to our main theme of this season, we're talking about skill. Efficiency is a component of skill. And this is how we can control posture in order to get people to move more efficiently. That's what really matters to me, Gigi. What really matters to you? Well, PJ, I feel like... uh... People, some people might have smoke coming out of their ears because they'll say, wait a second, I listened to a few of your podcasts and you guys were talking about specifically using inefficiency in your exercise program to, uh, you know, for this ecosystem you keep talking about. And you know what? They're right. And unfortunately, with a lot of exercise science, there's a lot of, it depends on the context. So here's what I would say that yes, we want efficient movement. Now, inefficient movement does have its place, but use it um, specifically and selectively. There are times when we want to make people inefficient to get them to try to move in a way when they're dealing with inefficient positions. But there's a specific rhyme and reason to that. And we don't espouse doing things because we can. We want to do things because we should. Mm-hmm. And with that, I think we've wrapped up this episode and I hope people enjoyed seeing the illustrations and they'll replay this episode as many times as they can so that they can go review 
some of the video and the biomechanical models. It was a lot of fun for me to kind of work through it, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, give us feedback. Let us know what you think. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Fitness for Consumption. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we loved creating it for you. Now, we want to hear from you. So drop us a comment at our Instagram account, at Fitness for Consumption, and give us your take on what the hardest thing to do in sports is and why, and we'll pick an entry at random and bring someone on the show to talk about it. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to help us out by following us on our Instagram page, at Fitness for Consumption, subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast on your preferred listening platform, and sharing the love by inviting some friends to listen to Fitness for Consumption. Thanks, everyone.